Oh, you have to edit this out while I look it up. It's called, it's called, I've got to find it. It's called, just edit this part out. Uh, I'm just looking on my phone here. Uh, never mind. Okay. Basically, oh, that's it. I got it, got it, got it, got it. I'm talking to you now from the same microphone I've always used, mm-hmm. but exciting small gear purchase surprisingly not as small as i thought mm. uh, is this mic is now mounted on a boom arm and shock mount wow okay great so hopefully there will be fewer thuds and weird noises happening as i accidentally hit the desk <laughs> sure okay and there's there's something else about about this mic so i don't know if you've people who've been listening to the last few episodes may have noticed the sound quality has been a bit Crap. <laughs> I wouldn't say crap. I would just say that uh, it's been in flux. Let's put it that way. Well, yes, it's, it's been changing a lot. And it has had a bit of a sort of weird, filtered, artifacty sort of sound to it, I think. Mm. And there's there's a few reasons for that. But we've, we've been talking about it, obviously, offline over the last couple of weeks. And there there are a couple of related issues. Part of it is the, the stand, which hopefully the shock mount will help. Mm. But there's also, there's been these high-pitched whine that has existed for basically the entire time we've been doing the the podcast Mm. and i've tried a few things to get rid of it first i followed the advice of some random on youtube Mm. who said that when they turn the gain all the way up the whine was much less noticeable which is kind of the opposite of what you'd expect but anyway i gave it a go and it seemed to be true so i've been recording for the majority of this podcast with the gain all the way up. Right. And hopefully people haven't noticed the, the wine buzzing noise too much. But it has made your life difficult because it increases the amount of clipping that I'm getting on, on my recording. Right, yeah. And and some of the background noise as well. So the last few episodes, I've turned the game down a little bit. And I've been sitting, I've also been sitting a bit further back uh, to try and reduce the, the height of the peaks. And... That has kind of worked, and and you've said the levels are much better, but now the wine whining problem has been back, and I've tried to filter that out, but that is what has led to these these artifacts. Mm. So anyway, over the last couple of days, I thought I would finally try and and get to the bottom of this problem, and so I read all the pages on the internet. All the pages. All of them took a very long time. Right. And. Uh, it does seem to be a very common problem. People have said various things. Some people say that it's the cable that you're using, the USB cable right. itself. Yeah. Some people say that it's a grounding problem, a ground loop, like the problem that you had as well. Yeah. Uh, and another thing is a an insulation problem at the USB hub level. People uh. say that you know if the you know there's some sort of insulation problem, you're picking up interference from the the surrounding computer. Right. So. They say, you know, try various different computers, try various different cables. I did all that. And then I looked on the Blue website itself. And this is a common enough problem that they actually have an answer in their FAQ about this issue. Wow, that's kind of good and not good at the same time, isn't it? (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a little bit... And so they said, well, first, take the microphone around, try all the different computers, different cables, which I'd already done. Now take the microphone around your house and try and find a room which has no electronics in it. 
and make sure that you're not picking up background sort of humming that the human ear can't usually hear, but the microphone picks up mm. from other electronic devices that are around. Mm. So I did that. I went to the very opposite end of the house, no electronics, no fans, nothing. And I recorded it. I still heard the buzzing. Mm. So I thought, okay, I'm convinced now that there's a problem with my microphone. So I'm going to write to Blue. It's still within warranty. It's got a two-year warranty, apparently. Mm. So I'm going to write to them and try and sort it out. So I went to their support page and they said, okay, if you've had this issue, upload an MP3 so we can hear the buzzing. Right. And we want you to turn the gain to 50% and the volume, the input volume on your computer also to 50%. Right. Which I guess they do so everyone's got it at the same setting so they can compare like for like. This was like an hour ago. This is, you know... I'm not sure what I was planning to do for this podcast. I guess I was just going to record it anyway. Right. right. Uh, but this is just not long before we started recording. So I was I filled in this whole form. I explained the issue, and then I thought, okay, I'll record the you know the sample now. So I took the microphone that I've been using in my laptop to carry around the house, and I plugged it back in onto my nice new shock mount, mm. and and plugged it into the computer, turned the gain fifty percent, blah blah blah, recorded it. No buzzing. <laughs> nothing for the first time in over a year mm. since i've had this microphone i am i'm getting a perfectly clean signal right <laughs> with no buzzing at all it's kind of like a it's sort of a very unsatisfying joy isn't it <laughs> right exactly it's like well there still might be a problem with my microphone right. and as long as the buzzing doesn't resurface, I'm getting closer to the end of the warranty. Right. So it's still still a little bit worrying. But at the very least, I thought, well, we're recording this podcast in an hour. There's no f***ing way I'm changing the settings now. <laughs> so I've got, I've got the, the gain at 50%, the, the input at 50%. We're going to record this. Right. And hopefully it'll be okay. I don't know, it might clip a bit, but the gain isn't at 100%, which it was before. So hopefully it'll be good. Mm. And and then I might fiddle with it a bit more and see if the buzzing resurfaces or not. But anyway, hopefully, fingers crossed, touching my wooden table, which I can do now. I've got a shot mount. <laughs> hopefully, it will all be good. So let's let's see what happens at the end of the recording. Well, you see, this is where uh, tracking back to episode uh, whatever it was. This is where we uh, we now segue into the beauty of balanced XLR microphone cables, but we won't do that because we've already talked about that. But uh, right. this is kind of going to be an issue, I guess, wherever you're using anything that isn't a balanced cable. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it's something to do with USB. I mean, to me, audio over USB in itself is kind of a bit of a some kind of black voodoo art, which I don't really understand. It's it's just an analog to digital converter in the mic. That's all it is. I guess so, but uh, somehow there's something very, very elegantly simple and wonderful about the, uh, you know, the balanced XLR cable solution, which is somehow more uh, satisfying than, you know, 50% gain results in no more interference over your USB digital signal, which is very weird, isn't it? Right. Yeah, I know. Well, people have said, you know, that there are USB issues, but I don't know. The amount that I've seen it online for this specific mic right. leads me to think it is some sort of, some percentage of devices that come out of the factory have this flaw. Okay. So it's... Uh, you know what I mean? And it's like, if you're unlucky, you get it, and then you trade it in for one that works, I right. guess. That's why they've got this support set up. So I, I'm hopeful that if this problem does resurface, I'll be able to contact them and they'll sort me out. I right. Mean, 
very much hope so because you know it wasn't cheap so <laughs> well you know i mean another solution is uh if if it's possible to get a refund i guess it isn't but if it was another solution for you would be to uh get an audio interface and a cheap microphone and a balanced xlr cable which would solve all of your issues no doubt yes <laughs> yeah it would i think i could have got a refund if it was within like two months of purchasing or something right i've been using this microphone for a year to record this podcast so. right right well, I think I'm a bit beyond that now. If this um, 50% gain, 50% uh, input trick seems to work next week as well, then uh, I guess maybe for the moment probably will be okay. It'll be interesting, maybe not uh, right now, but after this recording or when you have time, it'd be interesting for you to experiment a bit, like set it at 60% or 40% or yeah. just yeah. to see. To see if there's like just one sort of notch where it happens to work and the rest of the time it doesn't a sweet spot where the uh, yeah. where there is no more interference yeah well actually so funnily enough i'll be using this microphone again on sunday mm-hmm. for yeah the first online bilingual D game that i'm going to be playing dungeons and dragons that's uh you're going to be involving uh the uh, esteemed friend of the show, Tema, I guess? Yep. So we're going to be... I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before because one of my New Year's resolutions that I mentioned uh, was to make the effort to actually play Dungeons & Dragons this year because I've been wanting to get back into it for so long. Mm. And, you know, I've got all the books and everything. And so that was a thing that I was planning on doing and not one to make life easy for myself um, we're also doing this bilingually. So the group that I've formed to play consists of, there's me, I'm going to be DM, at least for the first game, and then there's four players. Mm. And of those four players, one of them speaks only English, one of them speaks only Japanese, and the remaining two speak both English and Japanese. Wow, that's that's going to be uh... <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting logistical challenge. Yeah, I mean it's going to work, but I'm, I just sort of wonder about the entertainment value for the uh, those members who only speak one language. Yeah, well, I think we're going to have to see, and it may turn out to be a complete non-starter. Like all, all we can do is try it out. Mm. But the idea that we've got is Tema and I are going to take it in turns to be DM. Mm. And when I'm DM, the game will kind of, the natural center of balance for the game, if you like, will shift towards English. So I will be DMing in in English Mm. and I will sort of act out all the parts of the NPCs and and things like that in English. Mm. And then Tema, in a side, sort of just in a chat window or something like that, will be translating what I'm saying, typing out the Japanese (laughs) translation of what I'm saying for those people who would rather sort of read it in Japanese. Wow, that's going to be intense. But then, but people can speak whatever their language, whatever language they like, right? right. Because I understand both. So you, we don't have to do the translation the other way, right? Like the Japanese speakers don't have to speak Japanese and then have Tema type to me what they said in English. Mm. So it's not, it's, it's only a one-way translation, really, unless the Japanese speaker and the English speaker want to talk to each other. Right. In which case, we'll figure that out. <laughs> but then and then when Tema is DM, which the first game is going to be with me as DM, and then the next one will be Tema, and that game will be run mainly in Japanese, and I will be doing the translations, typing out the translations to English for 
the the English speaking player. So I would like to try at least one game of each before we judge how viable this is and whether we should continue playing. Right. Because I would like, you know, I, I think both people should experience both sides, right? Mm. The Japanese speakers may be frustrated in the first game, but then really enjoy the second game and vice versa for the English speakers. So, you know, it, it, I think it's worth trying both. But if we can make it worth work, I'm really excited about it because I've, you know, I've been wanting to play for ages and it means that I get to be both DM and player. I get to experience both sides. Wow, it's, it's very, uh, very ambitious. I mean, you are definitely blazing new linguistic cross-border grounds <laughs> there. Uh, good luck for that. Yeah, yeah, we'll see how it goes. It's it's exciting. I would like to tell you all about the adventure that I have planned because I have I've finished it now. I've I've actually written it out as well to try and wow. you know, to give myself the the maximum leeway to concentrate on the difficult logistics that are inevitably going to be involved with playing a game in three different time zones and two different languages. Right. I don't want to have to be improvising too much. So I've actually prepared more than I usually would right. as DM. And uh I think it's quite an interesting adventure, but we will be playing the day after this podcast goes live. Right. And I know that Tema, for one, always listens to this podcast on the day it goes out. And I guess we could talk about it, and I could just give a spoiler warning now and tell Tema not to listen. What do you reckon? No, let's let's hear about it. Uh, I'd like to hear about it all together, like the experience together with uh, the story and things like that. So why don't we cover it next week? Yeah, or next next episode. I mean, next episode. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's con- yeah. I, good luck for that. I'm, as I'd mentioned before in the previous episode, after the uh, special guest appearance by the man himself, Tamarin, in uh, several episodes ago, you and he speak very very similarly like listening listening to him talk and listening to you talk obviously the tone of your voice is different but your pronunciation and your kind of expansive vocabulary that you both have uh is uh, is is very distinctively similar so having both of you speaking the two languages both sharing the role of dm is going to be uh very interesting and entertaining for your your players i think yeah well we'll see how it goes tema is a very good dm i was actually I said I haven't played D&D in ages. I, I did play a few games in Japan with Tema as DM, and that was an all-Japanese group. I was the only non-Japanese person there, so that game was entirely in Japanese. And it was it was good fun, but, you know, I'm comfortable conversationally in Japanese, but I'm not really at the level where I can be, like, realistically role-playing a character Mm. you know what i mean like my character was supposed to be like a kind of old-fashioned elven nobility kind of character right and but i'm not capable of speaking japanese in any other way than scruffy english programmer right so (laughs) (laughs) so i you know i i found it just a little bit frustrating that I wanted to put in more into the role-playing aspect of my character, mm. but I wasn't really able to do it because of the language barrier. Mm. So I'm looking forward to being able to play a character naturally the way I would like to in English right? and have that not be a problem when it comes to my turn to play. If it's possible, what would be really nice is if you could somehow record maybe two or three minutes of it so that uh, people could hear what it's actually like when you've got two bilingual DMs playing a game with two uh, sync, what would you call it, monolingual, I guess is the right word, monolingual players, mm. switching languages, translating here and there. 
uh, it'd be really interesting to hear what that actually sounds like. Yeah, well, I, we'll see how it goes. I am mm. Obviously, we're going to be talking online. Like I said, we're in three different time zones. We're Pacific, Eastern, and UK time zone. Right. So that's that's already awkward. And we're, we're going to be speaking to each other online. So we'll all be using microphones anyway. Mm. So I probably will record the call just for the sake of it. Right. And we'll see after the fact whether there's anything salvageable from that. <laughs> well, good luck for it. It's, uh, it's pretty exciting. Actually, uh, it gives me a sense of hope because uh, I think I might have mentioned it before. Actually, maybe I didn't. But my, my brother had a hobby of collecting role-playing rule books. Oh yeah, we did talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and he uh, he loved uh, you know the, the rules and the systems behind the role playing games just as much as he enjoyed playing them. And because in those days, you know, I was sort of like nine or ten or eleven around that age, I was sort of much too young really to to be uh, very useful in a role playing game with eighteen, nineteen year olds, uh, which is what my um, my brother's age at the time. Mm. And so I we did. Uh, I played several games of of D and D, and my first kind of real engrossing, captivating role playing experience was actually twenty years ago when I lived in China, mm. and uh, we had a a friend who was um, very familiar with various role playing games and just had to have like three d six three uh, six-sided dice mm. that he brought with him just in case there was an occasion. <laughs> and basically, um, uh, we kind of played his kind of bootleg <laughs> uh, rules where basically, from the player's point of view, it was actually really good because all we needed is a piece of paper and he told us to write down some key things, some key numbers, some stats, uh, a little bit of history or something like that, and name, and and, mm. and basically he took care of everything. So we... Really, all we had to do was just sit at the table and he would do the whole thing for us and he would roll the dice and, you know, uh, you could just – it really was – there were no rules to learn. You know, basically he would ask you what you wanted to do and you would say it and then he would roll something and write something down and then he'd tell you what happened and mm-hmm. it, it was just really uh, kind of easy. And, uh, yeah, that was my last – so that was 20 years ago. It was my last actual proper role-playing game experience. Mm. I think – um Life kind of got in the way with, uh, you know, getting married and being in bands and and, uh, being busy with work and then having children and sort of all things that basically prevent you from having three or four hours free to sit down with some friends around a table to do something. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, you know, if that works out, it kind of gives me hope that maybe there's a chance I could actually try a role-playing game again. Yeah, yeah, it'd be be good. I mean, I think obviously it'd be a lot easier uh, when you're not dealing with this whole two languages and, and everything. Yeah. So if this works out, then then I think that's proof that anything can be. Really. Yeah, I think basically, yeah. <laughs> so two weeks ago, just actually on the very day that the last episode of Station 13 came out, uh, mm. I had my, my monumental gig. Monumental? How did that go? It was monumental. I actually found out uh, uh, rather unfortunately about 40 or 50 minutes before I got to the venue that uh, the venue itself has previously seen performances from such musical luminaries as King Crimson and Brian Adams. <laughs> I say unfortunately because that kind of made me a bit nervous. It's like, what kind of place are we going to be playing in if, uh, <laughs> if King Crimson chooses to play there? So I can uh, proudly say that I 
stood on the same stage as uh, Tony Levin, who is King Crimson's uh, rather famous bass player. Uh-huh. Anyway, it was really, really good. A really, really good. The venue was really large. Mm. It's actually a church in the middle of the city. All right. It's a church, but it, it basically is a concert hall. Mm. It seats uh, maybe, in total, maybe 3,000. Mm. And and I'll show they there's sort of a it's a tiered seating so you have the ground floor then you have like a first balcony and then the second I don't know there's probably a gallery perhaps I'm not sure what the the proper name for it is but there's a kind of room up the top as well mm. and the event organizers for this gig they only rented out the ground floor because they weren't sure that they could sell enough tickets to fill up you know more than the ground floor mm. as it's uh, it turns out that's actually extremely expensive to gain access to all three floors of this venue. So basically the the way that the system works is that you pay the venue owners for the amount of space that you want to use. Mm -hmm. So if you want to use like the balcony as well as the ground floor, then it's, you know, uh, large, much, much more expensive. Anyway, so then they had the ground floor. So they sold out all the ground floor tickets. So it was probably about a 900 people there, I think. Mm. And yeah, we turned up and did a sound check. They had a, a really great sound guy that was there as well. And the uh, yeah, it was really, really good. The nice thing about playing to lots and lots of people is that you don't really, well, I don't really kind of feel very nervous in that situation. Mm. It's it's much more nerve-wracking playing to a very, very small crowd where you're very close up to people. Mm. But where you're on a stage and you've got lights pointing at you and, you know, when at moments when you see the crowd, it's just this large sea of faces that you can't really see very clearly. Mm. Somehow that's a lot less intimidating than if you're in a small venue with people just a few meters away looking right at you, you know. Mm where every every reaction on their faces you see very, very clearly. In this case, I couldn't really see very much, actually, so that's good. <laughs> um, so it was very comfortable. The choir sang beautifully, and uh, the band played excellently. Uh, you know, f- a few mistakes here and there from each one of us, but nothing, mm. nothing show-stopping. You know, I mentioned in our previous episode about uh, these kind of mental blanks that are possible when you're performing where you sort of your Mm. mind wanders off what you're doing or you start thinking about that c sharp and what it actually means (laughs) Mm. yeah did you did you remember the c sharps i did remember the c sharps but unfortunately in uh in uh one of the very very simplest songs that we were doing uh i kind of got lost on the sheet music at one point (laughs) oh dear (laughs) um so uh there was a little bit of a, a hiccup there in the bass line which wasn't too good, but uh, hopefully nobody noticed. Nobody seemed to notice. Like the nobody said anything to me afterwards about mm-hmm. it, and I said that oh, I I messed up that point, and then people said, "I oh, did you? I didn't hear it." So hopefully that's okay. <laughs> nobody was the wiser, but no, it was very very good. The the sound was excellent. Of course, when you're playing on a stage, especially with this kind of amplified setup, uh, what I'm hearing on the stage is uh, really different from what people in the in the the audience would be hearing. Because uh, you know, I was listening to. We had a fold back speaker mm. for that I was sharing with the guitarist, and I was hearing you know signal out of that, and I had my own amp on stage, which was serving purely as a monitor for for myself to hear I uh, what I was playing. They have a it's called a DI box, is a direct input box. It's mm. called which is a kind of an impedance converter for passive and active electronic instruments like guitars and basses. And basically that splits the signal. One direct line goes through a balanced XLR cable, which is 
really, really, really long all the way up to the um, uh, mixing desk. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of a direct line from my bass. And the DI box splits that together with a line that goes out to my amp. So basically I'm only hearing what's coming through my amp as uh, uh, monitor for monitoring purposes. And then the engineer has full control over what my bass sounds like to the front of house. Mm. Fortunately, because I use a, a kind of bass guitar, it's a Fender Precision bass, which is sort of like the uh, the quintessential standard bass guitar. <laughs> it was very, very easy for most engineers to deal with. So it was nice and quick and easy. He, you know, I pulled it out and he saw it and said, right, great, I know what to do. <laughs> so that was that. Didn't need to sort of talk to him at all about, oh, I want it to sound more like this or more like that. Mm. Uh, the, Fen- the Fender Precision bass or P bass was actually the very first mass-produced, widely popular electric bass guitar design in history. Mm. Going back to 1950, 50, well, 1957 for the type that I use, but I think it was, there was a previous model before that. Right. And anybody who's listened to any music that's played by a band from the past you know, 60 years will know this sound of bass guitar or you'll have, you will have heard it before. Right. And so very, very easy for engineers to deal with. So that was really great. Yeah, and other than that, it was uh, just really enjoyable. The performance was about 90 minutes long. And uh, yeah, we all had a good time. And um, uh, the, the crowd really, really just seemed to have a great time, which is great. And uh, all 250 singers sang excellently, so uh, very happy. Oh, very good. So you'll be sticking with them then? Well, this uh, this band, this is the largest performance that this band, this group, this project mm. has ever done. Mm. Uh, and they do, it's actually the combination of three choirs to form this one large choir for this specific performance. Oh, right. So those three choirs do lots of other performances all the time, but rarely on a scale that need a full band backing them. Okay. So, yeah, whether or not they need, you know, a bass guitar is sort of uh, basically up to the the kind of music that they're going to be performing in the venues that they'll be working at. And hopefully, uh, you know, if they do do something large enough where they need uh, a full band, hopefully they'll call me back. But, uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was great. Now, I think that um, there was word, there was somebody videoing it, mm. and I know that the sound was recorded. So there is word of a version of the performance going up on YouTube at some stage. So if that does come out, then I'll uh, I'll keep you posted. Oh, cool. Very good. Yeah, it seems like... So it's just a single one-off performance and you're done. Yeah. Well, basically, like I said, if they if they do any other large-scale performances where they want a bass guitar, hopefully they... Right. Hopefully they'll call you. It just It's interesting that, you know, it's a lot of work in rehearsal for then one performance, as opposed to, like, a play. Usually, when you put on a play you'll you'll have a run of some time even if it's only like a week or two Mm. you'll have sort of you'll do a few performances which kind of makes up for all the time you spent rehearsing you then get get to sort of repeat it Mm. i guess you've you've packed in you know 900 people is is a large audience so you you might have done a week's worth of performances of hundred or so people each, but you've packed them all into one single huge performance, essentially, right? Yeah, and it was quite long, and also you've got 250 people's logistics to deal with to actually get this together. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That, yeah, that's a lot of work. Yeah, that's unusual in itself. And the other thing is that, uh, yeah, here's, here's a pro tip for anybody who's doing this. 
make sure that you go to the toilet before the performance, well before the performance starts. Because when you have 250 people ready to get on stage, <laughs> sort of, it's like this huge, huge line for the toilets <laughs> before the, wow. you know. And I, I think everybody was kind of nervously wondering whether we'd actually all make it on stage in time because of the, the line for the toilets. <laughs> Speaking oh, of which, yeah. an observation. In Sweden... Public toilets are actually genderless. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. So you go in and basically it's just it's, – it's a room full of all of these doors that lead off into small single room mm-hmm. cubicles, I guess you call them, uh, with locks on the door. Not like the uh, – one thing I always notice whenever I go to America is that the, the cubicles in the toilets in America – they always have this huge, huge gap space. Yeah, gap yeah. Un- underneath the door, so that you can kind of. And it's so weird. You can kind of actually <laughs> sort of just bend down and and see everybody's kind of feet with their pants down around their ankles. <laughs> I'm not is, sure why that. I'm not sure if that's like so you can see if it's occupied or not because they still have the green red thing on the lock. So. Mm. I'm not really sure what the necessity of that is, but yes. there's, there's usually a big gap at the bottom and also quite often at the top as well. It's like just right. the middle bit is marked down, See that, like blocked out. It wouldn't work in Sweden because in, in the toilet area with those cubicles, you have men and women together. Right. Uh, and so they actually do need to be separate rooms with doors that close and lock. What about urinals then? Are they in cubicles as well? Or do they there, are, there, there are no uh, urinals, urinals, right. urinals. They're, uh, yeah, only these sort of um, separate isolated rooms. So there's no sort of urinals for, for males to do their things. Everybody just gets handled the same way, basically. All right. So anyway, I digress. If you do happen to have the chance to play with 250 people, then I would recommend going to the toilet well before the performance starts because otherwise you'll get stuck in a line. That is all. I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in leading up to this performance... I decided it was uh, about time for me to uh, get with the times and uh, get myself a new tuner. Oh, like a, for your bass? Yeah. So I've mentioned this before, I think when I was talking about, I can't remember what it was, I was we were talking about, maybe it was uh, oh, skateboards. Yeah. Mm. You know, technology kind of quietly advancing in the background is, uh, is an interesting phenomenon because mm. I've been using the same boss tuner for about 15 years mm. and it's it's kind of this thing that's got an input on it and you just sort of plug your instrument into it and it's got this uh display which comes up in the needle it's like a led needle mm. sorry not led lcd needle lcd needle yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I know uh, like a fake kind of lcd needle and and you know you use that to to tune your instrument mm. so that's not the way that the uh, the kids do it these days danny i know no, now it's all about clip-ons. Oh, okay, and what's that? Yeah, so basically I thought, well, you know, I'm going to be doing this performance and uh, it's kind of a hassle to um, see. W- with a performance like this, you'll do the sound check and you'll leave your instrument on the stage mm. and then the audience comes in mm. and then, you know, when it's time to go on stage, you go up onto stage and mm. you put your instrument on 
And that's a good time when you would want to tune again just to make sure that your instrument hasn't yeah. gone out of tune when it's been sitting under yeah. the lights. And the whole ambient temperature of the room has probably changed with all the people filling in you know, exactly. up as well. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. So at that time, because my instrument was live, live as in like there's an active signal going to the desk through the, to the PA uh-huh. in the front of house, it's not a really good time to be unplugging my, my, my bass. Oh, God, the, yeah. Everyone has to listen to (laughs) 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 Exactly. So I thought, well, you know, maybe it's time to get with the times and actually get myself a proper clip-on tuner. Mm. So I looked at the options and um, there are a lot of very, very cheap clip-on tuners out there and a lot of, um, yeah, very affordable models. So this technology is already fairly mature. But I still have no idea. I've never heard of a clip-on tuner. What does it clip on to? Okay, yeah. So basically, the way that it works is it's got a sort of a spring-mounted rubber grip on it, uh-huh. and you open the, the the jaws of this grip, and you you uh, clip it onto. Uh, in the case of an electric guitar or an electric bass, it's recommended that you clip it onto the headstock. Okay, and it then will actually measure the pitch of your instrument based on the vibrations going into the headstock mm. and so, so it's not clipping over the strings or anything like that you're just clipping it onto the, the end of the headstock are you that's right yeah that's right so it's pretty i don't know pretty amazing i think <laughs> yeah sounds it sounds like black magic yeah so basically it's it's measuring the vibrations of the of the instrument right. uh, and then and then deducing the pitch from that right so there are the, there are a lot of cheaper options, and it seems like of the more uh, deluxe options, there are mm. basically two models that uh, people prefer. Number one mm-hmm. is by a company from Denmark, I believe, called TC Electronics, mm. and theirs is called the Polytune, and that is amazing because the Polytune you clip it on, and for a guitarist you can actually strum. Mm. all six strings at the same time. Oh, wow. And it can separate them all out. Mm. Exactly. So it will actually give you on this little display, uh, which you can see because it's clipped onto your headstock, it'll actually show you the tuning of all six strings simultaneously. Oh, wow. Right. And that's why it's called the polytune. Yeah, and that's that's amazing. So apparently um, that's the first of the more deluxe options. Mm. I didn't go with the polytune because, obviously, for a, for a bass guitar... It's less useful. Uh, in the case of a bass guitar, it's actually kind of uncomfortable to strum all four strings at the same time. Right. <laughs> so I went with the second of the more popular options these days, and that is by a uh, rather famous company called Peterson. Hmm. And uh, theirs is called the Strobo Tuner. Strobo Tune? I can't remember. Strobo something, rather. So Peterson is actually a company that is... Uh, a dedicated specialist in tuning technology. Mm. And um, for uh, since the 60s and 70s, they've had um, large desktop kind of oscilloscope-looking units called strobe tuners, mm. which uh, since the 70s have, and 60s, I guess, uh, have been very popular for you know stadium gigs and large professional performance environments. Mm-hmm. So a strobe tuner is uh, accurate down to about Point one cent, which is absolutely amazing. Mm. Uh, basically, uh, it uses a different kind of technology for measuring pitch, and it's called a strobe tuner because the way you look at it is a, it's kind of a, a strobe light which moves. It kind of moves in either direction depending on whether the pitch is sharp or flat. Mm-hmm. And when it's basically still, that means that you're in tune. Okay. So 
the uh, Peterson strobe, I can't remember the actual name of it, uh, but the, the strobe tuner basically compresses that amazing technology with 0.1 cent accuracy down into this tiny little thing that I clip onto the headstock. And it's absolutely fantastic. Like it's really accurate and it's fast and it tracks wow. the bass guitar really well. And I could basically leave it clip. I could leave it clipped onto the headstock of my bass when it was on the stage. And then all I had to do is, you know, get up there on the stage and I could have the volume on my bass all the way down and I can tune without any signal going to front of house because it's using the vibrations. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, just before the performance is about to start, I just pull it off and put it in my bag and I'm ready to go. Oh, wow. I'm looking at some of these things on uh, photos of some of these things on online and they're kind of weird looking. Like I have not, I, just by looking at the photos, I can't quite tell how it works. Yeah, so the, the strobe tuner that you're probably looking at yeah. has a, looks like a kind of a wheel on the top. Right, and like a sort of long and short lines, sort yeah. of blocks almost. Yeah, so basically, uh, those all those blocks and lines basically rotate left and right. Huh. So the whole thing kind of moves like a kind of a cog. Right, right. And uh, it animates left and right. And when it's perfectly still, that means you're in tune. Hmm. There, there's no the only reason for the pattern that they have on that strobe tuner is just for easy visibility. I see. So that's why okay. there's thick lines and and uh, thick lines and thin lines. Right. Just so this is very easy to see, and that definitely was because. Uh, when I was tuning on stage, it was uh, kind of dark, but there were lights flashing around the place, and it was just really easy to see mm. when that was really still. Incidentally, my instrument actually didn't go out of tune, but you know <laughs> that's fine. Anyway. Wow, that is yeah. I've I've also got an old tuner from like twenty odd years ago that I used for ages and ages, basically exactly the same as as your boss one, right? And that's all I've known. And then more recently, I've been doing essentially exactly the same thing. I didn't bring my electric guitar over when I moved to America. I've only got my classical guitar with me. So I'm I'm kind of dealing with an acoustic guitar, not an electric one. But I've been using just the... Apple has a, an app for the iPhone called Music Memos, right? which is just for recording little musical snippets. And it's got a kind of multi-track recorder. So you can record a guitar part and then record a singing part or a different guitar part or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it also comes with an embedded tuner. So I've just been like literally just whipping out my iPhone and using the microphone in the iPhone mm. as, as not not up to one cent accuracy, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one of the really amazing thing about this specific Peterson um, Strobo tuner, mm. actually, you're looking at, what, what's the actual name of it again? Strobo Clip. Is it, there's, it. there's a few different models that have come up when I searched for Peterson Strobe tuner. Right. Mine is the Strobo Clip HD, I think is the latest model. Anyway... So here's another amazing thing about this, which gives it an advantage over its rival, the, the TC Electronic Polytune. Mm. So the, the strobe tuner, strobe clip on, strobe clip, strobo clip, actually is, it can be used for a whole range of different instruments, mm. including things like violins and, and cellos and things like that, and also wind instruments. All right. So this is this is where it starts to get kind of mind blowing. What is a clip on? Yeah. So forgive me if I'm actually uh, being blown away by some extremely rudimentary acoustic science, but basically you clip it onto the bell of a trumpet and it will tune. Uh -huh. You clip it onto the bridge of a violin and it will tune. Mm. You clip it onto the the headstock of a, an electric guitar or bass and it will tune. I suppose all of those things you can sort of imagine vibrating. 
especially the bell of a trumpet, right? That's where the sound is coming out. So I suppose it does kind of make sense. But that's that's the bit that I'm that I'm kind of blown away about. I mean, if if you can clip it onto a trumpet and you're you're playing concert pitch A, which is 440 hertz, right? Mm. Does that imply that every part of a trumpet is vibrating at 440 cycles when you're playing a concert pitch A? And is that the reason that it sounds like an A? Because with a with a stringed instrument, mm. you can kind of understand. But still, you know, if I if I clip it onto the bridge of a violin and I play 440 hertz concert pitch A, mm. in the instructions it says that if you have poor tracking on your instrument, try relocating where you've clipped it on. Right. Try clipping it onto some other part of the instrument. Fair enough. So does that imply then again that every part of the instrument is actually vibrating at 440 hertz when you're playing concert pitch a or 440 hertz or an overtone or a, a you know a, a relative pitch to that some fundamental of it yeah yeah is, is that right well i've never thought about it but i mean it does sort of make sense i don't think that is like why it sounds like an a as you put it i don't i think the sound is coming from the air being vibrated at that mm. frequency right especially with a trumpet right the air is being pushed out of that bell at the end and with it, with an acoustic guitar as well, that's why you've got the big body, right? Is to give the air more space to move, and then right, it comes out right. I think I think it is, I think it's the air, right? Not the, it's not like reflections off the body, which is vibrating at that. So I think the the body vibrating is is like a side effect, but it would make sense. I mean, if you know, electric guitar strikes me as a little bit more amazing. I'm actually very impressed that this works with electric guitars. With an acoustic guitar, you can sort of imagine you've got this air vibrating at that sort of speed and the strings vibrating at that speed, that frequency. So you can sort of imagine how that would be, how the body would absorb that and also resonate at a single, uh, similar frequency. Mm. I'm I'm very impressed that an electric guitar sort of, or, or an electric bass, also picks it up you know in a, in a way that it in a way that can be picked up by the instrument and presumably not be interfered with too much by the fact that you're you're holding the thing at the same mm. time right right that's yeah I, that's like i i think it's just absolutely amazing so there's there's one other really great thing about all of the peterson tuners so because they have extremely uh superior pitch accuracy down to point one. Uh, sent mm. just for reference i think the tc electronic polytune is accurate down to about one cent mm. so this is uh, 0.1 accuracy wow because of that there's another thing that they've kind of added on to their uh, products to basically sweeten the deal there's a pun there they call that <laughs> they call it sweetened tunings right yeah i can see that sweetened with a with a sort of clef logo that's on right. there the peterson strobo yeah, so basically, because you have that accuracy, what it allows you to do is it allows you to set up presets mm. for subtly different tunings. So standard tuning is equal temperament. Right. Now, with the Peterson tuners, the sort of extra bonus feature that you get is these sweetened tunings. So because you have that accuracy, mm. they can actually have tuning presets uh, which are subtly different from equal temperament. Right. And... That is uh, really, really useful for instruments like the acoustic guitar or the electric guitar, mm. where the fret spacing, there are certain inherent kind of deficiencies of the design of the acoustic and electric guitar, 
which I, I guess you could call them deficiencies, but I, you could also call them idiosyncrasies or sure. kind of uh, characteristics. Right. The fret spacing is the same for all the strings, right? Which right. But there are different frequency exactly. ranges. So exactly. So you yeah. can actually look online. You if you if people are interested, there there are uh, various instrument makers, bass makers, and guitar makers that design accurately tuned fretboards mm. and they look really, really bizarre. The, the frets are kind of mm. slightly, for each string, they're in slightly different places and uh, it looks really, really bizarre. But those kinds of fretboards are designed to basically compensate for these idiosyncrasies that are, are created by the design of the fretboard, basically. Right. So especially for steel, like acoustic guitar, these Peterson sweetened tunings are ever so slightly different such that they will give the guitar overall a certain kind of specific sound, like slightly brighter Mm. or slightly darker or more mellow, just by these tiny, tiny discrepancies in in the the tuning accuracy. And I think that's amazing. (laughs) I think that's really, really amazing. And so the the cool thing about these Peterson ones is it's got a little uh, USB port on the side. You can actually plug it into your computer and uh, upload through uh, like a – a dedicated desktop app you can actually upload your own preset tunings mm. which are slightly different if you if, if you should find one that you like right and of course on the internet as well you can find them around the place and you can upload them to try them out so i with a bass it there is a like a a a bass sweetened tuning which is designed to uh, compensate for string excursion so basically if you have a high action which means your strings are quite a bit above the fretboard yeah when you're pulling a string down onto the fret, it's not like you take a, a straight line and you know move it down parallel evenly over the fretboard because it's forming a sharp triangle mm. that will actually do funny things to the length of the string that you have depressed. The lower that you can get your action, the more accurate the tuning will be over the frets. But if you, if for whatever reason you need high action, for example, you play with a pick very aggressively or you know, you, you dig into the strings a lot or you just don't like fret buzz, mm-hmm. then uh, that can actually affect your tuning. So these Peterson tuners, the Peterson custom tunings will actually uh, compensate for that, which is also amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I tried it. Actually, it doesn't sound any different. Right, right. I was going to say, like, I'm not sure that I could sort of notice the, the subtle distinctions given how how well I seem to live with my guitar, which is which is always slightly out of tune at the best of times. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, uh, you can actually try that yourself, all those out there with a guitar, like tuning an acoustic guitar so that like an E chord and an A chord both sound perfectly in tune mm. is actually quite difficult. Right, yeah. Unless you have an extremely expensive guitar that's been, you know, very, very accurately and expertly adjusted mm. getting tuning right on a on a acoustic guitar can be very very difficult so that it sounds in tune everywhere I'm, I'm looking at this um some of these tempered fretboards now actually that you mentioned that have got the the lines of the french uh, the fret markers uh, are sort of wiggly in order to account for this difference in, in the, the temperament yeah and uh they are i mean they they look like whoever made them was drunk <laughs> kind of drawing these wiggly lines i wonder what it sounds like when you bend a note as well i suppose it would sound like bending a note but it would bend with a sort of a different curve if you were to plot it out on a graph but yeah you probably because when you're bending a note obviously your pitch becomes very very dynamic anyway 
Right, right. You probably wouldn't hear that. Yeah, you probably wouldn't notice that some notes kind of rise in pitch at a, at a different rate to others, depending on where you are doing it on the fretboard. Right, right. And the, the rate would actually change as well as you, especially on what looks like around the sort of fourth fret, there's quite a dramatic sort of curve on the, mm. the G string. Yeah. And uh, so you can sort of imagine if you were to plot out the difference in frequencies bending without that fretboard and bending with it, you probably wouldn't be able to hear the difference, but you'd actually be bending it sort of much less of a smooth curve and it would sort of adjust, sort of change over time, I imagine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so anyway, so this kind of ended up sounding like an advertisement for for Peterson tuners, but uh, if you are an instrument player... Well, probably if you're an instrument player from the you know from the past ten years, you've already got a clip-on tuner because that's what people have these days. And I was just right. you know fifteen years behind in the times, but uh, I guess I kind of sound like somebody saying, "Hey, t-shirts and jeans, pretty good, eh?" All right, right. <laughs> I've heard of this fascinating new way to communicate with people called email. <laughs> Nobody writes letters anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I feel the same. I had no idea. Like you say, the same thing with skateboards. I haven't looked at tuners since I first started playing guitar nearly twenty years ago. Mm. And uh, yeah, I had it hadn't even occurred to me that, of course, the the technology would have moved on in, in dramatic new directions. Yeah. So yeah, whether you want to tune to 0.1 cent accuracy or you want to be able to tune by, uh, you know, strumming all the notes on your guitar and just going for it in one go like that, which I, which is also really amazing if you think about, you know, technologi- technologically how how that would have to work to sort through oh. six different series of of vibrations and their overtones and all the sympath- sympathetic vibrations that are happening and isolate six different notes. I mean, that's also really amazing. But anyway, yeah, yeah, get it, get yourself a clip-on tuner and match it with your T-shirt and jeans while you type email. <laughs> it's the future, Danny. Yeah. Actually, I think email is already the, the old thing. <laughs> Speaking of email, my uh, I don't know about you, Danny, but my inbox is kind of, at the moment, it's, it's, the, uh, it's a distinct, consistent shade of GDPR, isn't it? <laughs> I have, I've, uh, I've got a lot of emails. There's a lot of updates to, to the privacy policies going on. Mm. How many have you been getting? Are you up to the, the tens? The... Yeah, I, I'm um, a member of a fair few uh, emailing lists, especially for um, companies that make uh, you know soundware like um, music production plugins and effects plugins and software instruments and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. you got to be careful. It's a bit tricky. Some of them say, click here to accept down new terms and sign up to the new newsletter. Mm-hmm. And other ones say, we're updating our privacy policy. So go and have a read if you like. Right. And uh, yeah, there's both ways. <laughs> there seems to be both opt-in and opt-out seem to be either acceptable or, or one set of people is getting it wrong because some of the emails are like, if you do nothing we'll assume you've accepted. And if you mm. want to drop out, click unsubscribe here or something. And other people are like, we're going to unsubscribe you by default. And if you want to keep receiving emails and keep your account open, then you need to take action to continue. Mm. Uh, so you do you do have to read them. But so a lot of people, have obviously everyone's been getting these emails. There's been a lot of very good memes on the Twitters <laughs> about, <laughs> about putting we've updated our privacy policy in in every scenario you can imagine. Right. It is one one of the comments that I saw somebody said, which rang true, is we've updated our privacy policy. Is the 
I want to add you to my professional network on LinkedIn of 2018. Right. Which is definitely, <laughs> definitely getting a, a lot of those. But I love it. I think it's, it's great because I have got so many emails from things that I had forgotten that I ever had an account on. Right, right. And I actually went through a couple of years ago, I manually went through and tried to audit all my various accounts mm. and either delete the account or change the password away from the sort of old password that I used to reuse on a couple of different sites, which is obviously not good. So I tried to change it to a new generated password. And so I, you know, I've actually made the effort to try and do this. And there were just so many that I missed that I had forgotten that I signed up for like 10, 15 years ago or whatever. So I wish there was a sort of button that I could press that would do this, would have every service that has ever existed that's had my email associated with it, send me an email so I can cancel all the ones I don't want anymore. Hmm. Uh, so it, it's actually, I think it's a really good opportunity. I know it's, you know, it seems annoying and your inbox is getting flooded, but it's a really good opportunity to kind of take stock because I don't think it's going to happen again anytime soon. So. I imagine that um, for many companies that have um, uh, critical online marketing via email newsletters, mm. this has to be fairly catastrophic because um, much like our own situation where we are shifting the server that our uh, podcasts are stored on and uh, some dear listeners have uh, not yet uh, updated their subscriptions – which, as far uh, as I can tell, it's it's one listener listening through Firefox in Sweden. So if you're listening, <laughs> Swedish Firefox user, just go to the new website, station13.fm. Right. We care about each and every one of you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. So I imagine that for some uh, email, uh, some companies who are very reliant on email newsletters as their you know critical form of marketing – yeah, this has to be fairly, fairly catastrophic because, you know, there's going to be now there's basically if you had, for example, 7000 subscribers to your newsletter before mm. and now all of a sudden you need all of those 7000 people to take action in order to, you know, ensure that they are receiving your newsletters still mm. if, uh, if for whatever reason you are of the camp that requires somebody to actually, you know, resubscribe to your newsletter. Yeah, that's got to be pretty risky, really. I imagine that a lot of uh, companies may find themselves losing a fair chunk of their subscribers because people, you know, didn't it, it went to the yeah. you know junk mail, or they they just didn't bother doing it, or they decided they didn't want it anymore. Or they might, and and it, I you know I can see it being problematic. But to be honest, like I don't think anybody really makes money from email subscriptions directly right they don't make money from the fact that the email landed in your inbox they make money from you seeing that email and clicking on a thing and mm. buying it or subscribing or whatever you have to do mm. and so the people who don't respond who don't take the affirmative action to resubscribe they're probably not the people who are going to be converted into purchases anyway mm. right they're probably the people who already your email is going to their spam mail so they're not looking at them anyway or they just auto delete you know they just delete it as soon as they see it without reading it properly mm, perhaps in a, in a sense it it sort of it lets you separate the wheat from the chaff a little bit. perhaps but then the thing is that you know as as it is with any kind of online marketing you know there's a percentage rate that of this many people this percentage will actually do something right 
And, you know, I guess if that percentage is dependent on pure timing, you know, if, if you are selling, you know, for example, sunglasses mm. uh, and, you know, you, you send out your newsletter saying we have a new model of sunglasses that's on sale right now mm. and you send it out to 10,000 people and you have a certain percentage that are likely to take action purely based on, you know, for example, oh, that looks nice, I might get that or I just lost my previous pair of sunglasses and I need a new pair, that looks great mm. and it's cheap, I'll get that. You know, if it's a percentage then, then yeah, basically the more people that you can get your email in front of, even if it's, you know, somebody that is, I don't know, going through their junk mailbox to see if there's anything there or um, just happens to click on your email this time when usually they don't, mm. even though they may not be, you know, the, the critical kind of customer that you need right now. No, no company that's using online marketing via email newsletters is going to enjoy seeing their subscription uh, subscription count drop for this kind of reason. Right? Yeah. No, it's true. I guess we'll we'll have to see it how it goes. But I I tend to think it's a consumer friendly problem. Mm. Right. That is that is a problem for companies, including small and independent companies, who will probably suffer more from it than the Googles and Facebooks of this world. Right. But in in general, I don't think the consumers are missing out on much by accidentally being unsubscribed from something they, they might have actually been interested in mm. because they can always resubscribe. Mm. One of the, the people affected by this was my own father. One of the GDPR emails that I received in the last couple of weeks was from my dad's company. Oh, really? Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, I have remained subscribed to his. I can't actually remember whether his was one of the affirmative action ones or one of the will automatically keep you subscribed, but you can unsubscribe if you like ones. You, you should probably ask him to see if uh, see if whether he's lost you know, basically his subscri subscriber count before this and then after this. Right. If he if he is of the the camp that requires some kind of action from the subscriber, yeah, be interesting to know like those statistics of like how many he lost or whether he could convert all of them or it may have something to do with the software that people are using to manage their newsletters mm. like whether you're using mailchimp or any one of the big capable mass email newsletter management mm. services that are out there yeah no it, it is interesting i mean it may be something like i mentioned last week you know when i when google reader disappeared john gruber lost like some high proportion of his readers that that never came back Right. It it may have a similar effect. You you just suddenly your subscription count takes a, a nosedive and never recovers. Mm. But at least in in the case of Google Reader and Daring Fireball, he said that he said something similar to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, that he felt like the, the readers that he lost were the ones who didn't engage much anyway. Mm. So he doesn't feel like he lost much in terms of income as a result necessarily. Mm. Right, right. So another certain friend of the show recently very, very skillfully spilt coffee all over his, no, sorry, tea all over his keyboard. Ah. And uh, said friend of the show is uh, a uh, very, very capable programmer. So his job is basically typing on a keyboard all day. Yep. And uh, with uh, his previous keyboard being malfunctioning because of tea. Tea malfunction. He came to me saying... Alex, you and Danny do that Station 13 podcast, don't you? Tell me which episode to go to where I can get recommendations for programmers' keyboards. 
All right. And, and uh, <laughs> did he? <laughs> he did. He did. And um, uh, my answer, unfortunately, was actually, you know what? We've never talked about programmers' keyboards. Yeah. Wow. Which is some, something that I think uh, regular listeners of the show will be uh, somewhat surprised about because it is some, seems like something that we would talk about, but we haven't yet. All right. So, um, keyboards, Danny. What's, uh, what's, the, what's the go? Uh, so, yes. I'm just actually bringing up his keyboard because he's he's already gone and bought a keyboard, right? He hasn't uh, he didn't wait for us to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I guess his his needs were a little more urgent. I can see in in the photo that he's put up on Twitter with his keyboard, there is a cup of tea just waiting to be spilled on it. Right, <laughs> sitting sitting right behind it. Right. So, in case uh, in case this one doesn't last too long, maybe maybe we'll be able to help him out next so- time. Yeah, so he went and got the um, one of the Microsoft ergonomic keyboards, which has a, a split down the middle, mm. and it's uh, it's raised up so that basically you, basically your wrists are more on a, a straight angle as opposed to typing with your your hand and on an upward angle. Right. Yeah, it sort of lifts towards the middle. Have you ever used an ergonomic keyboard? I cannot. You can't uh, because yeah. I cannot use an ergonomic keyboard because my the way that I touch type, I type very, very quickly, mm-hmm. but the way that I touch type is very, very unorthodox. Right. And it's kind of, it's the result of many decades of habit. Mm. <laughs> so I'm kind of like one of those, like kind of like one of those left-handed guitarists who learn to play their instrument yeah. by flipping a right-hand guitar upside down. Right, right. <laughs> like I'm, I'm sort of used to doing it the wrong way, basically. Right. So, yeah, if I were to use an ergonomic keyboard, it, it just wouldn't work because I'd have to be jumping over the, 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 the moat in the middle. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, you might find that you can actually fix your typing by doing that because I, I was like you. I, I used to have a very unorthodox way of, of typing and... I actually fixed my typing. Well, I guess this will lead into the first of the keyboards we can talk about. About 10 or so years ago, I bought the DAS keyboard, yep. uh, which is quite a famous, uh, one of the, the first of the sort of big popular mechanical keyboards that came out. Since, you know, the mechanical used to be the default, right? And there was the classic right. IBM Type 2 clicky keyboard, which is popular on PCs. And the uh, Apple something, I, th- I think there was there was uh, an Apple equivalent. I think that's also a number two in there somewhere mm. um, that is very popular. The aforementioned John Gruber apparently has a cupboard full of them still because you can't buy them anymore. And so he's <laughs> if any of them break, he wants to have some spare. <laughs> and uh, those were, you know, that was just what a normal keyboard was. And then as it became more normal for keyboards to be quieter, and have less travel on them. Eventually, people started to miss the old clicky style of keyboard, mm. which took more physical effort to type and also made a sound as you typed. And so this kind of cottage industry of modern keyboards being built specifically to try and give you that tactile feedback became popular. Mm. And the DAS keyboard was one of those. But as well as that, it also had the sort of differentiating feature that they didn't actually print any labels on any of the keys. Mm. So it was completely blank right. and black. Right. It had all of the keys were there, but none of them had any of the letters or the numbers or anything printed on them. Mm. That's uh, extremely hardcore. 
Well, yeah, I mean, part of the selling point of it was, which I was a little bit skeptical of at the time, but that, you know, you would improve your touch typing because even subconsciously, sometimes you're glancing down at the keyboard to double check something. Even if you can type, you know, people sort of do that subconsciously. Right. And so I kind of bought it half with that in mind, but mainly just because, you know, I thought it looked cool. Just before you go on there, if I can ask, Mm. like, sure, I can understand, like, from a touch typing point of view, like I said, with my odd kind of um, mongrel kind of <laughs> uh, mode of, of touch typing, I don't need to look at the keys anymore, except for when I'm using punctuation. Right. So things like, you know, the at symbol or hash or yeah. dollar sign yeah. or percentage, like that, I'm, I don't use those often enough to actually remember where they are. Right. So what about you? Well, it, that's exactly one of the things I was going to mention is that when I first got it, I found that punctuation was one of the big things that I really struggled with, right? Especially as a Mm. programmer, you type a lot of punctuation. There's a lot of curly braces and semicolons and all sorts. Right. So, yes, I found that, you know, I could type fairly effectively when I was just typing letters. But then when it came to punctuation, that was one of the things that I kept messing up. And it took me a little while to adjust. Mm. As a result of using that keyboard for years, now I'm pretty good at typing punctuation because, Mm. you know, I I haven't had the the benefit of being able to look at the keyboard and type it. Mm. But the other interesting thing that I found was that although I considered myself, like you, capable of typing without looking at the keyboard and of typing, you know, fairly quickly, I found that there were certain keys that I would frequently mess up. I would often, and I would mess them up in funny ways. I wouldn't type the wrong key I would hit like between the keys and stuff like that. And those were specifically, it tended to be the ones in the middle. So like the B and the the Y, for example. Mm. Both of those, you have to stretch with either your right or your left hand, right? And I think proper touch typing says that you should use your, your right hand for the Y and your left hand for the B. But they, they're both kind of in the middle, so you could use either. Mm. And I, I think part of what was sort of unorthodox about my style was that it was right heavy. I am right-handed. And so if you think about where sort of proper touch typing says that you should divide up the keyboard between your right and left, it's on the Y, the H, and the B are typed with the right hand and the T, the G, sorry, the Y, the, y, the H, and the N are typed with the right hand and the T, the G, and the B are typed with the left hand. Hmm. And I did it almost exactly one key to the left. So my right hand was responsible to everything, including and to the right of T, G, and B, essentially. Mm. So it was just a little bit shifted. And then my left hand always had sort of half a pinky on the shift at the left and then was doing the, the home row. And I found that when I switched to the DAS keyboard... I could gain greater accuracy without looking and without having anything printed on the keys by correcting that and using the the proper in inverted commas touch typing style. I see. And so I mine my typing was originally more sort of unorthodox and has shifted to become more standard over the time that I've I've used the DAS keyboard. Mm. So I mean you may find that if you it's up to you whether you think it's worth your time. But you may find that if you used either a, key- a keyboard with no 
less it's printed on, or an ergonomic keyboard like the one that Chris bought, you may find that you, you do actually adjust surprisingly quickly. Hmm. I do think the, the one thing I wish ergonomic keyboards did, because they so clearly could, is that the B really does sit right in the middle. I think it's completely acceptable to type a B with either your right or your left hand, and it doesn't really make any difference to the speed of your typing. And on an ergonomic keyboard, if, as you can see in, in the sort of picture, the N ends up being double width. Mm. Because they they put the split and the split kind of curves outwards towards the bottom of the keyboard. So they've got all this extra space. So they make the N double width. And I think they should just have a B on both sides. It would look weird, but you could you could easily have two B keys on that keyboard. Mm. And then, you know, you could type it whichever way you wanted and it wouldn't matter. So that's that's my feature request for ergonomic keyboards. <laughs> yeah, it would make more sense to have uh, a double B, I suppose. So... What are you using these days? Are you still using the desk keyboard? No. So actually, so I've been through a couple of these fancy expensive keyboards. I'm right now I'm on the standard Mac keyboard, the extended one with the number pad mm. that comes with the iMac Pro. Right. Uh, because I got it when I got this computer and I tried it and I liked it. So I've kind of stuck with it. The other keyboard I have in my drawer, which I was using for the last five years or something, I, I, I bought it when I was still in Japan, is the Happy Hacking keyboard. Right. Which is a, a, a smaller form factor. It hasn't got the number pad or the page up keys and all that. Yeah. It does have uh, cursor keys, I think. So the other funny thing is that when I moved to Japan, I was very much in the camp of, I'm going to move to a new country and it would be worth my while to get used to their keyboard layout, right? Right. So a lot of other people that I know, they went to a lot of effort to import UK layout or US layout keyboards into Japan so they could continue to use the the layout that they're comfortable with. Mm. I very loudly thought that was stupid and that you should adjust and get used to the native keyboard layout quickly because especially for me, because I was running around other people's computers and helping them all the time. So, mm. you know, I wanted to be comfortable on whichever computer I used, not just my own. Mm. So I've, I very quickly adjusted to the Japanese keyboard layout. And I, at the time, I thought maybe I'm helped a little bit in this because I'd already switched from the Spanish layout to the English layout when I moved to England. So I'd already kind of done a large keyboard layout switch in my formative years. Uh, <laughs> right. So I don't know if that made any difference. But... The, the Japanese layout, it's got a couple of sort of quirks that that seem annoying, particularly as a programmer when you move to it. The, the QWERTY side of things is all the same, but the apostrophe is above the seven. So you go from being able to just hit it with your right little finger mm. to having to hold shift and hit shift and seven in order right. to type an apostrophe, which you do type quite a lot in programming. Mm. The braces are also a bit weird, but make perfect sense for Japan. But both square brackets and curly braces on UK and US keyboards are to the right of the P. And the, mm. there's first the left brace is on the left, and then the right brace is on the right, as you might expect. On a Japanese keyboard, they shifted one over from that, and you get the left brace on the, on the line with a P. And then underneath that, you get the right brace. Right. So they're up, down instead of left, right. And if you think about the way that Japanese works, it's 
you know, traditionally written downwards and Japanese quote marks, which are typed with the square brace, square bracket and keys, you know, they, they have a sort of top left, bottom right nature to them. Right. So it does, it does kind of make sense for Japanese, but that takes a bit of adjusting. Mm. But now that I've used it for a while, I actually really like that as well, because the other place that braces are often arranged up and down, right, is in C code, mm. where you've got, you open a function and you've got a curly brace and then a load of code and then a closing curly brace underneath it. Right. So it actually feels fairly natural to me as a, a way to type the braces. Right. Anyway, long and short of it is, I've now moved to America and I was supplied an American keyboard by my company when I first moved here. Right. And I tried to use it for like a week. And I was like, no, forget it. I'm not using this rubbish. And I requested a Japanese layout keyboard. Wow. And so I've actually, I'm still using a Japanese keyboard layout. I bought, when when I bought this iMac Pro, I selected the Japanese keyboard instead of the American one. And uh, right. I never, I think I could go back to a UK keyboard but i find the american keyboard just so frustrating to use really and one of the big reasons for that i think is the enter key at the right right it's very small on it's very small on the american keyboard layout americans listening will just think this is totally normal but it isn't you're all weird uh, <laughs> american keyboard layout it fits in a single row you've got the home row hjkl and then you've got what have you got semicolon colon and then to the right of that you've got the the two quote marks on an American keyboard, a quote and an at on an English one, I guess. And then to the right of that, you've got something else, maybe. And then you've got the enter, and it's on that line. And then above that, where you've got the P and then the two braces, and then I think on the American keyboard, you've got a backslash after that. Yeah, that's right. Or where that backslash usually is, on like a UK layout and also a Japanese one, that's actually still the enter key. It's two rows high. Right. And through years, and, and on the Spanish layout as well. So every layout that I've used in my life has this two-row high enter key. Mm. And it turns out, I learned when I first had to use an American keyboard, I have got used to hitting the enter key exactly in the space between those two rows uh-huh. with my little finger. Right. And so on an American keyboard, I'm constantly hitting both backslash and return with the oh, same finger and it's it drives me bonkers <laughs> i see so at, at work you are using you're, you're not using a like a specialist programmer's keyboard you, you said you requested a japanese layout one you're not using a right like your dust keyboard or, yeah. or a happy hacker I, that's right i i'm using a standard mac it's compact uh, keyboard the one that comes with an imac right in a japanese layout okay uh, I did consider bringing it for a while. I used my DAS keyboard, right, which was all right. But again, I got frustrated by the... That's a European layout keyboard. Okay. And I got frustrated by uh, the difference because I was using the Happy Hacking keyboard, which is a Japanese layout at home and the European one at work. And so every time I switched, I had to switch keyboard layouts mm. in my mind, you know, which which is really frustrating. I think if you're going to do it, you should do it everywhere or not at all. So now your uh, your DAS keyboard is is hibernating, is it? So I have two neglected, very expensive keyboards. Um, mm. My DAS keyboard is sitting in a drawer at work. Right. And my happy hacking keyboard is sitting in a drawer to my left as we speak. Well, that's a little sad. Maybe maybe uh, you could have sent uh, one of them or both of them to uh, our friend uh, 
who was uh, needing a new keyboard urgently. Yeah, well, probably more urgently than international shipping from yes, America yes. would afford. But that's true. Yeah, it it is a bit a bit unfortunate. Um, part of the reason is, I guess, the the this is ridiculous, but the wireless nature of it, like right, you know, modern Mac keyboards are, are wireless, and I've grown used to and started to enjoy not having any wires on my desk. Mm. And both of these, the desk keyboard that I have and also the Happy Hacking Keyboard, Fujitsu, who make the Happy Hacking Keyboard, have come out now with a Bluetooth version of it. Okay. But the one that I have is wired. And mm. so it's just kind of annoying just having this wire on my desk. And the other thing is the number pad. I actually find the number pad really useful. I know a lot of people don't use them, but mm. I make quite a lot of use of the number pad, both for typing in numbers and also I know a lot of tools that you use, like... Like Renoise makes quite a lot of use of the number pad, right? Yeah. So for myself, um, I need to have a keypad uh, because Renoise uses the number pad um, very, very extensively. Mm. But for myself, actually, ironically, I'm also using a uh, an Apple USB keyboard. And um, this is by far my favorite keyboard. So I have also tried your keyboard back when we were together, the, your Dust keyboard. Mm. Um, and um, obviously, I, it's not really suitable for me because... Uh, I'm not very good with remembering where all the punctuation marks are. So, and I don't really type enough to to kind of uh, adjust to, quickly for there to be or for there to be that much benefit in being able to remember where you know oh, exclamation right. yeah. mark it is. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, of all the keyboards that I've tried, though, also the 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 clicky micro switch ones and all that, the Apple USB keyboard is, in my opinion, <laughs> Apple's greatest industrial design i think it's absolutely brilliant <laughs> so the reason that it's great is because obviously the low travel so it's very the, the keys don't go down very far right which means that uh, for somebody like me i find myself able to type extremely quickly but also because the way that i type is very unorthodox and i have like sometimes fingers crossing over hands and like ridiculous just all ridiculous stuff but i do it very quickly mm. that the low profile of the keys makes it really really easy for me to type extremely quickly in the funny way that i do mm. i really love the weight of it so that it's made of a i think it it feels like aluminium but it, it maybe not but it's a it's quite heavy mm. so when you set it on the table it feels really solid as you're typing along mm. Unlike any any plastic keyboard that I've tried, which kind of has a bit of flex to it, this has no flex at all. So it just feels really, really kind of solid as you as you're typing. And then all the the membrane switches—they're not micro switches, the mechanical switches—they're kind of mm. membrane switches underneath the keys. Just feel really pleasant. So yeah, they they they're not mechanical, but they they still have a very good solid feel to them. Like they don't yeah. feel squishy like a lot of cheaper keyboards do. Yeah. So also, like you, uh, when I was in Japan, I uh, had a, a when I first got there, I was obviously using the office computers of the company that I worked at. So I was using all uh, Japanese layout for everything. Mm -hmm. um, I agree that the, the enter key being nice and chunky kind of definitely has a good feeling about it when you slam that massive fat key mm -hmm. on the side. Mm -hmm. But it, when I ordered... Uh, this is way back in like the early 2000s when I ordered my, my very first own personal computer. Uh, I actually ordered one with a US layout. All right. And yeah, I decided I decided to myself, well, you know, I have no idea where I'm going to be living in the world in the future, but I imagine that a US keyboard layout is not going to be too hard to find wherever I am. Right. So I decided to sort of standardize to the US layout and I've kind of kept with that. 
And fortunately, yeah, when you when you order Apple products, at least you have the option of quite a few different options of what uh, layout you want to have the keyboard. And mm. so just I got um, this. Uh, uh, I'm looking at it right now, but this uh, USB keyboard is a US layout, and I've got it. Uh, how old is this? This must be. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's the very first incarnation of this uh, USB uh, full keyboard with the with the the keypad on the side as well. Mm. And yeah, I, I just adore it. Like I, I just love typing on it so much, so much so that any other keyboard, including the keyboard on my MacBook Pro, uh, is just kind of really not very satisfying. <laughs> so, and when you get used to a particular sort of keyboard, I think any deviation from that thing becomes frustrating, right? Yeah. That said, that said, uh when I did try your dust keyboard, mm. I think it was that was the one that I tried, uh, I can definitely see the appeal in mechanical keyboards. Mm. Even though your fingers are moving a whole lot more because they they travel, the keys travel right. a lot more. Right. There there is that kind of clicky feeling where you, there's a a definite threshold that your finger passes over right creates this kind of very haptic sensation through your finger that you've clicked this key now <laughs> right you know, right that's uh that's a very satisfying feeling so yeah i can definitely see the appeal of um that kind of key but i think also what it might help with is that you know if you have this tactile and also auditory confirmation that you've pressed the key Mm-hmm. that will actually help you probably use much less pressure because I imagine that if you didn't have that, if you're just using a very cheap off-the-shelf uh, sort of standard issue PC keyboard, which has a mm-hmm. usually have a very plasticky, spongy kind of feeling, yeah, yeah, you could get into a habit of pressing really, like kind of really hammering it yeah. because there's only the only sensation that you have that you've actually pressed the key is the key bottoming out. Right. Whereas if there's actually a click, that is not at the very bottom, but is actually on the way to the bottom. Once you get used to that, I imagine that you know you may be able to type a little faster because you don't need to actually bottom out the keys in order to actually make a, a keystroke. Perhaps right. I don't know. Right. Do you do yeah. you when you were using your happy happy hacking keyboard and your dust keyboard, were you always bottoming out the key, or were you some sometimes kind of just going down to the point of the click and then releasing? Um, it's difficult to say because. The click is the more noticeable thing. Mm. So you don't notice so much whether you are then going on to bottom out the key. I know with the that DAS keyboard, at least, the keys are actually weighted differently as well. Mm. So you the, the resistance on the, the keys towards the middle of the keyboard is higher than that on the edge because your little finger tends to be weaker than your index finger. It's intentionally designed that way. Yeah, it's intentionally designed to feel, wow, you know, even across the whole width of the keyboard. That's amazing. Yeah. So I mean, you know, they, they put a lot of effort into into making it feel right. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, yeah i I feel a bit sad about the fact that I'm not using either of these keyboards. Not just mm. because of the sort of you know they cost a lot of money, but you know they are good keyboards, and it seems a shame not to use them. Mm. But for right now, this is this one is kind of suiting me quite well. So mm. One thing that I have um, uh, thought of doing was I think it's the Happy Hacking Keyboard, or maybe it's Dust Keyboard as well. You can actually order them with uh, custom key colors. So you can have, like, for example, gamers might prefer to have WASD a different color because they yeah. use that for controlling. 
when they're playing games. Uh, one thing that I've tossed up doing actually is is getting one that's colored for tracker programs. Right. So for those who don't know... The piano layout, right? Yeah, basically piano layout. For those who don't know the old-fashioned um, uh, tracker programs, uh, because in those days we didn't have MIDI keyboards to import notes, your QWERTY keyboard becomes a piano keyboard. And Q-W-E-R-T-Y-U-I, the, that row of keys are all white keys on the piano, and two, three, five, six, seven... Nine zero will be the black keys, and the same on the bottom row. So Z X C V B, that's all the white keys, and then S D G H J L etc. That's the black keys. So I don't need it because I, I I've done it for long enough that I can very very intuitively and quite uh, capably actually play piano on a QWERTY keyboard now, <laughs> <laughs> which is very useless but kind of cool I guess um but yeah it'd be kind of nice especially if you have the chance to customize a keyboard to do that of course anybody anybody who uh is more uh, uh practically minded would just say well Alex why don't you just get some black stickers and stick them on the you know the black notes of your white apple usb keyboard nah, nobody <laughs> wants to stick stickers on their keyboards <laughs> right <laughs> yeah have you ever seen the uh the type matrix keyboards no that's something that I've always wanted to sort of try, but again, it's it's quite a a big investment for you know something that I might hate. Mm. But I'll send you a link, and you'll you'll see what I mean. Okay, well, I'm just having a look now, actually. They they're arranged in a regular grid instead of being standard QWERTY keyboards to sort of offset. But these ones are in a irregular grid, still QWERTY layout, although they do oh, wow. offer Dvorak and stuff. Mm. And they have the backspace and the enter and the delete in the middle between the letters wow and yeah it's it's really weird and they reckon that that's actually ergonomic you know i'm not sure a, a grid doesn't look like it would be the most ideal shape for your hands but they reckon that it's ergonomic and useful to have it that way wow that'd be wow that's yeah i'm just looking at the picture now i don't know about the position of this shift key like the shift key is vertical and it's off off to the side of the the a on both and the sides Z. as well. Yeah. Right? yeah, like maybe that's just because I'm just I'm used to moving the like operating the shift key with my little finger. Like I, I guess yeah, yeah, it I would be the same place. It would make sense to the a, yeah. yeah, and to the z. Well, that's a that's kind of neat, but I yeah, I, I don't, you'd have to just try it. I it guess is. that that is extreme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've always wanted to give one of those a go, but. Never enough to actually pull the trigger on buying one. Well, aforementioned friend of the show who has uh, has been now going for one week with his Microsoft ergonomic keyboard. We'll have to check in on him uh, and see how he's going, I guess. (laughs) 